I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. An unusual podcast for us. It's an emergency one because we've had carnage in financial markets that requires, I think, some commentary and analysis from the other hand. So here we go. The carnage, of course, is centered on the UK. I guess today's podcast is really a tale of two budgets, one from the UK on Friday last and, of course, Minister Donoghue and McGrath's budget of yesterday in Ireland. And really, the contrast between two budgets couldn't be starker. Despite the nonsense coming out of various opposition parties, it was a very well-crafted budget. One would have things to quibble with, but they would be quibbles rather than major criticisms, I think. Things that the ministers didn't do, maybe a few things that they did that they shouldn't. But overall, it doesn't really matter what we think. The financial markets are the ultimate arbiters of this, and it's caused barely a ripple. Unlike the one in the UK which has caused absolute carnage in financial markets. We've had headlines today suggesting that the UK pensions industry, or large swathes of it, could be severely damaged to the point of going under. Those headlines are actually wrong. The the pension industry, as a result of what's been happening in financial markets, is in no danger of being insolvent, but is in grave danger, at least until the Bank of England's emergency announcement today of suffering a liquidity crisis. I always remember back in the days of the great financial crisis of just over a decade ago, Jim, when Miriam O'Callaghan on primetime asked uh, an analyst, is this a solvency crisis or a liquidity crisis? And it was at that moment that I knew we were in trouble when the difference between solvency and liquidity was being discussed 
on uh, major news shows. The reason why UK pension funds have got a liquidity crisis is actually quite technical. It's got to do with the rise in government borrowing costs, the, the famous bond yields that were all the rage back in the financial crisis in a different context. It's got to do with the way in which they hedge their liabilities. The, the, li- their liabilities are, of course, pensions to be paid in the future. And they are huge players in the government bond market in the UK and indeed elsewhere. Pension funds are major players in government bond markets everywhere, including Ireland. The problem is that the way in which they say, well, we'll pay you this pension in 10, 20 or 30 years time is that they go out and buy government bonds. The bond is an asset that matches the liability. So it's all about matching assets with liabilities to something called LDI, liability driven investing. The problem is that they don't just go out and buy gilts. They do all sorts of fancy derivative things. Now, people might think this has got shades of all the fancy derivatives that were around the mortgage market back in the day of the financial crisis. There's no direct read across here, but it, 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 you can understand why people say um, there are dots to be joined here because it is fancy derivatives causing problems. And the way in which the derivatives in the government bond market in the UK are causing problems is that if you buy or sell derivatives, you have to do something called posting collateral, something called margin requirements. You can't just come out and say, well, I will buy or sell you this bond in 30 years time using this swap arrangement or this derivative arrangement. You have to post a portion of of your bet, if you like, in collateral with the exchange or the counterparty with which you're doing the trade. And if you've bought, effectively bought bonds for delivery in 30 years time and their price goes down, you've got to stump up a lot of cash today. And these pension funds, although they are solvent, they don't have a lot of cash. So they've had to sell things in order to raise the cash to post the collateral. It's the forced selling that has caused this doom loop in government bonds. So we had yesterday the Bank of England talking all tough, being macho, that thing that we've talked about before, saying that interest rates are going to have to go up a lot. They're going to be doing quantitative tightening, uh, reversing the quantitative easing, the money printing, if you like, in recent years. And lo and behold, today we have resumed quantitative easing. They've announced that they are going to buy 75 billion worth of government bonds over the next 13 days. I think it's going to be about 5 billion a day. And that caused the biggest one-day drop in UK long-term government borrowing costs in history. So these are really big, big days in financial markets. Now, you might think that this is all very sort of interesting, but only for a UK audience, not so, because this has caused ripples around the world. We've often remarked how in economics and finance, everything is connected to everything else. And these shenanigans in London have even affected, we think, the all-important US government borrowing market, the treasury market, as it's called over there. And the Americans have been getting pretty antsy with London. Uh, The IMF issued an extraordinary statement in response to questions yesterday in which they criticised what the UK Chancellor of the Exchequer did last Friday in no uncertain terms. Very, very unusual intervention. Janet Yellen has been muttering negative remarks about all of this. So when you see the Americans getting involved, you know that we've got something serious and that they are worried that what the UK government did last Friday with its tax cutting budget for rich people, unfunded promises of spending and tax cuts to such an extent that it's going to disrupt global financial markets, not just the ones for sterling. This isn't over yet. The Bank of England has certainly bought itself and the government some time 
But there are plenty of people saying today that the new UK, UK Chancellor, Kwasi Kwarteng, known in certain hedge fund circles as Kwasi Kaching, is toast and that his job is now on the line. I've even seen speculation, and it is pure speculation at this stage, that Liz Truss won't survive this, which is quite an extraordinary state of affairs, given how recent both these individuals have taken up their respective positions. From the point of view of the housing market in the UK, which is always of interest to everybody, I think, from a whole host of perspectives, uh, we think that the most likely path for short-term interest rates, should all of this continue, is that by the middle of next year, they could hit 6 or 7%, which is, by historic standards of a decade or so ago, not that high, but relative to the amount of mortgages that are out there, that would cause mayhem. And one of the routes that it would cause mayhem is via changes in the market that have taken place there and indeed elsewhere. It used to be the case that everybody was on a variable rate, variable rate mortgage in the UK. Now it's about 20 to 30% of mortgages are on the variable rate that would be directly impacted by that 6 7%. Everybody now fixes their mortgage for two, three, four, five years. The problem they've got next year when all these higher interest rates are probably going to be biting and biting very hard is that the fixes that people took out during COVID, and there were a lot of them, are all due to roll over. So people that took out two-year fixes when they, they come to renegotiate their mortgage next year are in for a huge shock. So one analyst from Credit Suisse, I think it was this morning, said he thought that the UK housing market's heading for a 15% price fall. That's the sort of febrile atmosphere that we have at the moment. And if the UK housing market is toast, then so is the economy, quite frankly. Um, we know how connected the housing market is to consumer spending in particular, but a whole host of economic activities. And if you think the UK economy is toast next year, that has obvious implications for Ireland in the round, but certainly for anybody exporting to the UK, because you've got a double whammy for Irish exporters. You've got the competitiveness loss thanks to the fall in sterling against the euro. So you've got a much tougher pricing environment. And you've actually got a marketplace into which you're selling that might be shrinking, almost certainly will be shrinking, actually, which means that agri-food businesses in particular, but anybody in Ireland selling into the UK is going to be finding it a much, much harsher environment. The only good thing is, of course, that people going to the UK for a weekend break, popping over to London for a bit of theatre, a bit of food, a bit of drinking, are going to find it much cheaper. But you might find that tourists coming to Ireland um, are going to be noticeable by their absence next year. That, of course, will be made up for by the fact that you're going to get swamped by Americans at current exchange rates. What's going on in exchange markets, interest rate markets, I haven't even mentioned stock markets, which have been tanking, is going to affect all of us. I've spoken for far longer than I should, Jim. I'm now going to ask you to talk about tell me what it's like living in a well-run economy, because I certainly have no idea what it feels like. Yeah, Chris, um, absolutely fascinating times on markets at the moment. And it, it is quite extraordinary, the level of political naivety displayed by Liz Truss and Kwasi Katang last week. The, the UK economy, obviously, over the last couple of years, has been struggling badly with the mistake, in my view, that was made in relation to Brexit. And over time, it was just becoming more and more apparent the sort of damage it was doing. And during that period, of course, Boris Johnson was in charge. And I think his incompetence was shrouded by the fact that we were in the middle of the COVID crisis. So everything bad that was happening could be attributed to, to COVID rather than Brexit or economic mismanagement. 
but we've come out the other end of Brexit at least, or sorry, COVID at least for the moment. It's it's suddenly a change of leadership, and suddenly she is being shown up as being economically illiterate, as is her chancellor. I mean, the notion that in an economy that is currently as vulnerable as the UK that is outside of the European Union, that has its own independent currency, um, that it would turn around and deliver that sort of fiscal expansion. And okay, I'll talk about Ireland's fiscal expansion yesterday, but what differentiates ours yesterday from uh, the UK last week is the fact that um, the UK is borrowing to do this and, and as a consequence is seriously exposed to what the markets are doing um, in terms of bond yields and so on. So the, the level of political naivety is absolutely extraordinary. Um, from an Irish perspective, um, you know, the UK is still a very important export and indeed import source of imports for Ireland. Uh, UK tourism into Ireland is an incredibly important part of our tourism product. Um, and of course, as you say, for Irish people traveling to the UK, there is a bit of a bonanza now. So um, I might just get up and book a few more trips to see QPR play over the coming months myself personally. But if you look at the implications of this for the Irish economy today, and, and I know this is changing by the minute because we're seeing so much volatility, but the the, the sterling Irish exchange rate of old is trading at 89.52 at the minute, okay? And um, it has, a few weeks back, it was trading down at 83.84. So that is a pretty dramatic um, deterioration in that exchange rate relationship. And of course, it compounds uh, the already the already existing challenges for Irish exporters into the UK because of Brexit. So if you combine Brexit and the exchange rate where it is at the moment, and there's no guarantee um, that it won't fall a lot further, who knows, um, over the coming weeks. Um, and then if you add to that, those two things, the fact that the UK economy looks like going into a pretty deep and damaging recession um, over the coming months, um, you know, it is definitely going to pose significant challenges for Irish exporters into the UK market. And indeed, our imports from the UK will become more expensive. And um, that obviously adds to inflation because we do import a lot of food, particularly from the UK and other stuff as well. But food, uh, if you look at the supermarket shelves here, not as obvious now as it was pre-Brexit, but there's still a lot of UK produce on Irish shelves. So that exchange rate movement makes that much, much more difficult. And then there are many other Irish businesses who sell into the UK. So this is going to seriously disadvantage them. So it, it does pose a significant challenge. And it's interesting in the budget that was delivered yesterday, there wasn't a lot really said about the risks to the Irish economy from developments with sterling, from developments within the UK. Uh, but I, I guess we'd be excused for or the, the Department of Finance would be excused for that because it's only in the last few days we've really seen um, this dramatic impact. So um, it does certainly pose an interesting challenge for the Irish economy. Uh, but the one thing I think you can certainly say we have here in Ireland that the UK does not have is a semblance of political sanity and political stability at the moment. We're all great at criticizing our politicians. Um, it's a national pastime. The bottom line is we, we generally have a pretty um, sensible political system here. 
um, and long may that continue. But it, it is certainly possible at this side of the water now to look with sympathy or with apathy at what's happening in the UK, depending on one's perspective. Um, it, it's, it's amazing stuff, absolutely. And how the UK within the space of a couple of weeks can deteriorate to such an extent is just extraordinary. I was fascinated to see the reaction of Sinn Féin in particular to yesterday's budget. I listened to the two Sinn Féin TDs, Pierce Doherty, and I'm afraid a woman whose name I have forgotten, Michael McGrath's opposite number on the, on the opposition benches, give their speeches. And Maureen, they were redu- Farrell, I presume. That's right. Yeah. She was reduced to making this weird metaphor about wardrobes and clothes and shoes, which left me baffled from the look on Michael McGrath's face, left him equally baffled, to be honest. Uh, but both of the TDs essentially said it was a rubbish budget because they didn't do enough. And what they did do, they just stole our ideas, which I thought was a pretty feeble response. And I was actually encouraged in a funny kind of way by how feeble the Sinn Féin attack on the budget actually was. Even I could have done a better job of it. And I thought it was a good budget. So we've got this extraordinary state of affairs, Jim, which isn't over because Going back to the debacle in the UK and the way it's resonating around the world, there's, there's that old word, as I mentioned, contagion, everything being connected to everything else. There's, you know, the sterling itself is still, it's not a major reserve currency in the way that the dollar is, but it is still a reserve currency. And that's a channel of influence that is very important that have got a lot of people worried. There is speculation that the uh, budget, the UK budget will simply have to be cancelled in the sense that all of those measures that were announced last week abandoned. Uh, a lot of people are calling for that. So, Chris, um, sorry, th- presumably if that were to happen, um, the position of the Prime Minister and Chancellor would be totally untenable, yeah? Well, that's why I think it probably won't happen unless the financial markets really, really do crumble in a way that suggests there's no other possible outcome. I, I don't see politically how a Chancellor and Prime Minister, who essentially co-wrote last Friday's budget, uh, could survive uh, cancelling it. But we have seen all sorts of things in British politics in recent years that we didn't think a Prime Minister would survive. And he did, didn't he? At least right up until when he didn't. So I, I don't want to pin my colours to the mast too too firmly. But under normal circumstances, no, no politician in the UK could survive having their budget cancelled. So it could well be, for example, that Liz Truss sacrifices the Chancellor in, a, in an attempt to keep her own job. But, but we shall see. The way in which various commentators are suggesting things like cancelling the budget, saying that the Bank of England has to raise interest rates now, is very much going back to the 1990s. Do you remember that um, Clinton White House, I think it was the chief of staff, who um, always wanted to, or said that he famously said that he wanted to come back as the bond market on the assumption that you could be reincarnated as whatever you wanted. Because if you are the bond market, you can intimidate everybody. For a long time, of course, the bond markets have been very quiescent. The old bond market vigilantes that you and I grew up with have been doing other things, but they seem to be back with a vengeance. And it's a reminder that these rises in borrowing costs, which are taking place everywhere. Ireland's borrowing costs have gone up, nothing like the UK. But that has a number of implications. I think we're going to have an awful lot of regret that we didn't do an awful lot more borrowing when interest rates were zero for for things like infrastructure, for for rainy day funds, actually. Um, You could borrow for a rainy day fund at zero um, and keep the money to put the money to one side in the way that the minister did, did yesterday. 
But the the thing that I the substantive point that I would like to make is that I don't think this is over by any stretch of the imagination. It's very difficult calling which way it's going to go, but I think the markets are going to stay very volatile and very difficult, particularly for UK politicians. I mentioned UK housing, but I do think these interest rate rises that we have already seen and the ones that our Marcho Central Bankers are promising are going to cure at least part of the house price problem, but cure it in a way that is, of course, very unfriendly and very unwanted, which is that um, higher borrowing costs will crush activity and bring about lower prices. We prefer more house building to bring about lower prices, but uh, that's a story that we've rehearsed many, many times. One of the things that strikes me about all of this is, is how new some of it is for an awful lot of people. People like us who are old, Jim, we've seen some of this before, bond vigilantism, for example. But one of the things that we've talked about on this podcast is about the, the interest rate rises. And we've had kind of a gentle disagreement that the posturing of the central bankers who are telling us that they are going to be really Tarzan and Jane-like and really aggressively rise interest rates, their tone has changed in recent weeks quite dramatically. And we've been getting some chunky interest rate rises from around the world. I thought that they are taking huge risk with the world economy, that I think that they were underestimating the extent to which uh, the economy is very sensitive to interest rates. And I think that the last few days is evidence of that. It's not evidence that I expected in the form that I expected it, at least. But one of the things that we may not have got a very good handle on is that over the last decade or so, The levels of debt, both public and private, have gone through the roof. As interest rates have come down, as long-term borrowing costs for governments hit zero or negative in many cases, an awful lot of debt's been injected into the system, which must mean that when interest rates go up, you are going to be more sensitive to those interest rate rises with, with consequences both known and unknown. So I would venture to suggest that we've had a piece of dramatic evidence supporting my thesis that interest rates actually either won't go up as much as the central banks are telling us they will, or if they do continue along this path of aggressively raising interest rates, the consequences are going to be pretty grim. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. What do you think? Well, I did say in a podcast a couple of weeks ago that um I could see some rationale for the interest rate tightening in the United States because definitely because of the fiscal stimulus coming on top of the monetary stimulus, there was certainly indications of excess demand in that economy. 
Uh, but I could never see it in Europe, in the euro area. The inflation in the euro area has not been driven by excess demand. And as a consequence, increasing interest rates to me seemed like a silly thing to do. But I still expected the ECB to do it. And they have done. And I, I said a couple of weeks ago as well, Chris, that if the ECB tightened interest rates as much as the markets are starting to anticipate, that would destroy the eurozone economy and that would bring forward the day when interest rates start to come down strongly again. Because uh, I agree with you, the the, the, the whole environment, asset prices, etc., that has been created by a decade of very cheap money, um, quantitative easing, record low bond yields, in fact, negative bond yields in some countries, um, historically low levels of interest rates, short-term interest rates, etc., that it has just elevated asset prices to such a level that it is now just so dangerous to start increasing interest rates aggressively. And I, I certainly get the sense today that the markets are now starting to reprice a little bit um, they're starting to realize, well, actually, interest rates might not rise by as much as we were forecasting a day or two ago. And maybe there's a bit of sanity starting to creep in. But for for, for central bankers, uh, you know, they've got to look at what's happening at the moment and come to the conclusion that further aggressive monetary tightening from here is going to be extremely dangerous. In relation to the Irish housing market, I mean, I've I've been I'm always been asked about house prices. Um, why I've no idea because my track record in forecasting house prices isn't great. But um, I my answer is typically that logically house prices should come back here, and I hope they will come back. And that logic is driven by the deterioration in the global economic environment, the increase in interest rates and the basic affordability issue. So in other words, many people quite simply can't afford the prices that are on offer in the housing market at the moment. So if you combine all of those things, logically, Irish house prices should come back. But then my my second part is being a typical two-handed economist here, that logic doesn't always prevail in the Irish housing market. But I, I become... I, I guess less fervent in that view now that logic won't apply here. I think logic will apply here. And I'd be very surprised if we don't see a significant correction in the UK housing market and a less serious correction, but still a correction in the Irish housing market. And in fact, I think that that sort of healthy correction in the Irish housing market would be very good. And indeed, over the next six months, I think a correction in the Irish economy um, would be good because it would take a lot of the froth out of the system uh, that has put us in a very dangerous place at the moment um, in the event of something going wrong. So um, huge, huge uncertainty out there. There's no doubt about that. And uh, I can't tell you the number of times I've given a presentation, Jim, where I've said the same thing as you, which is that essentially house prices are unforecastable of all of the, of the things that one can try and forecast, they are amongst the most difficult. Those house prices and exchange rates are the ones that um, I find the hardest and are the ones, of course, that I get asked the most. I can't tell you the number of presentations I've given where I said, don't ask me about house prices. And then the hands go up and they say, what do you think of house prices? It really is quite extraordinary. Chris, can I, can I ask you a question? Um, you don't have to answer it, but if you were an investor in equities at the moment, uh, what would you do? I mean, it's it's just so uncertain. 
Well, of course, equity investing is always uncertain. But as you rightly say, well, one of the things that I think I've always said in my career or heard other people say as well, things are particularly uncertain at the moment. (laughs) Indeed. They are. They are right now. So if ever, if ever you hear me say that again, ask me about what it felt like today. You, you have to stick to your basic principles and you have to stick to your investment process, which hopefully is, is something that you've got. You're not just throwing mud at a wall and hoping that something will stick when it comes to your investment strategy. And remember all of the old basics beyond cliches almost, which is that equity investing is for the long term. It embodies up a belief that there is going to be a long term and that, for example, today, Mr. Putin is not going to be dropping any nuclear bombs on us anytime soon or at all. And that the economic future for all the ups and downs of things like today and the other ups and downs that we seem to get with with increasing frequency, actually, are still about a rising trend and that it's the trend that will help you out over time. So to, to tell you, I mean, I have a, a, you know, a little bit of spare cash in one of my pension funds and I put a third of it back into equity markets last week. I'd been holding off for quite some time and I will probably put the other two thirds to use over the next few weeks when I, this is now going to be me being contradictory in the sense that I always say I hate the forecast. I do expect the equity markets to go lower than they are now in the short term. It's not a table thumping conviction. I never have those sorts of views. But I think that should should the equity markets do what I expect them to do in in, in the short period, I'll be putting some my pittance of a a cash pile um, back to work because it's money that I don't uh, hopefully won't need for years and years and years because that's the, the final cliched element of being an equity investor is that you must be an investor, not a trader. If you try to trade these things, you're coming up against mathematical algorithms that will absolutely destroy you in the short term. Uh, nobody, you're, 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 What happens day to day in equity markets is computer to computer these days. It's not even um, human being to human being. I, I stick to those principles and that as, as equity markets come down, paradoxically, your expectations for future returns from equities should be going up. And provided you have that belief in a positive economic future, which being the optimistic economist that I am, Jim, I still do, despite all the current shenanigans and things that that we worry about. I do think that uh, things will, over time, get better and some kind of normality will be restored. But those are beliefs. Um, Different people have different beliefs. There's an article, I think, in the New York Times today. There's been a sudden surge amongst the very rich in the United States in buying underground bunkers, getting ready for the apocalypse. That's always been a feature in certain circles around the world, particularly in the United States. But uh, you can also understand why somebody buying one of those things would disagree with me about my optimism about the future, given what is happening um, in Eastern Europe right now. Chris, I won't be going out buying Kellogg's cornflakes, I can assure you. The Irish budget yesterday, um, I, ro- I wrote a piece last night uh, just trying to, not not repeating all of the measures that were introduced, but basically trying to put some economic context around it. Um, I did it late enough last night after a long day. Uh, I was probably tired and emotional, so I hope there were no uh, factual errors in there, but I tried to give um, a reasonable assessment of what's going on. Um, Jim, can I stop you just there? Because you used a phrase that I think we need to explain to, um, we do have some British listeners to this podcast, and tired and emotional has a particular connotation in the UK. Back in the 1960s, there was a famous minister, a very talented minister, who was fond of the odd jar or two. And he was found lying, I think, in the gutter outside the House of Commons 
And when asked what, what was, I think his name was Mr. Brown, what was Mr. Brown doing lying in the gutter outside the Houses of Parliament? His spokesman replied, he was tired and emotional. So please, <laughs> please, I, I assume that you weren't um, uh, the, the, the worst for wear for drink when you mentioned that. Um, I can assure you I absolutely was not. I was on the road at five o'clock this morning, so no way. Uh, but um, the you really are a font of um, useful information, Chris. Useless information. I, I said useful. Uh, the the budget package yesterday, well, you know, was quite extraordinary. It was if you include the three hundred million that's being um, diverted from the fund that was set up, the COVID stroke Brexit contingency fund that was set up a couple of years ago, we're talking about a package of eleven point three billion. Um, the cost of living package, four point four billion, and it's it's interesting. And I, I make the point in the piece I wrote last night that the budget should really be seen through a political rather than an economic prism, uh, because a month ago um, it seemed nailed down that the once-off cost of living package would be three billion. Then Sinn Fein came out and said they were going to come in with three point. They would favour three point eight billion, and suddenly. Uh, the government delivers 4.1 billion plus that 300 million. So it just shows you the extent to which politics are driving everything at the moment. The other part of the package was a, <clears throat> excuse me, the core budget package of 6.9 billion and 5.8 billion um, went to increase public expenditure and 1.1 billion um, was accounted for by taxation measures. And the main element of that taxation measure was the lifting of the rate, the rate of pay at which one moves from the 20% to the 40% tax rate um, was increased from 36,800 to 40,000. Um, and I've I've always argued, and you probably know this, Chris, from discussions I've had with you over the years, that to me, one of the biggest problems with the Irish income tax system was the fact that you went on to the high, the very high rate of tax at a relatively low level of income. And you did so very suddenly. So um, and I advocated about five years ago that um, governments should move towards a 50,000 threshold. OK, so we're now at 40. There's a long way to go. But I certainly welcome that. I, th I, I think I think it's a good move. The other interesting feature, many interesting features, but Pascal Donohue, the Minister of Finance, was talking about the fact that they're going to explore a 30% tax rate, a middle tax rate. Um, that's something that uh, 10 years ago I would have argued for uh, because I think it created a much greater level of graduation in the tax system. Um, and, but it, it will be interesting to see if by 2024, that 30% rate is introduced? And if so, what the political implications of that will be for the current government? Do, do you think that that 11.4 billion package, 11.3 billion package yesterday, which has been derided by the opposition parties, not in a very credible way, in my view, um, do you think it will make any difference to the political support base for the government? I wonder about that, actually, because I mentioned the Sinn Féin response earlier, because that was the question I was asking myself, because I think they struggled to uh, criticise this in, a, in an effective way. I think simply jumping up and down like children saying, oh, it's not enough, give me more, give me more, is not credible. And I think plenty of people will see that for what it is. It was, it was interesting to see that. And I think that they might be just a little bit worried I mean, 
it was a very sensible, very pragmatic package. There are certain things that um, I would have criticised. The main one being is that I would have suggested that I, I know Ireland is a neutral country, and so suggesting that it be put on a war footing um, is language that you're not used to. But the particular sense in which I'm using that term is that it needs to be put on a war footing for energy security. And by energy security, I mean not allowing this to happen again, or at least doing whatever you can to stop uh, another energy crisis. And that can mean only one thing in Ireland, because the natural resource that you have there waiting to be exploited is wind energy, uh, both onshore and offshore. And I would have put the economy on that war footing for obvious reasons. You, um, you must try to help households in the way that the minister did yesterday with the energy tax credits. But ultimately, you've got to lower the bills, you've got to lower the cost of energy. And the, the way in which you do that is that you produce cheap wind energy, because wind energy is now so much cheaper than gas, orders of magnitude cheaper. And of course, the second thing, the second big box that's ticked is that the right thing to do from a climate change perspective. So all everything points to, I think, putting the Irish economy, and indeed many economies, on a war footing for what I call energy security. It seems to me to be an obvious thing to do, and I, I regret that more isn't being done both within the budget, and of course it's not just about the budget, it's about the political direction of the country, taking on vested interests, reforming the planning system. Reforming the planning system is something that you have to do for your housing crisis, as well as for the energy crisis, to make sure that these wind farms get built and get built quickly and all the NIMBYs are seen off. We've, we've talked about that. But going back to, sorry, I've drifted away from the, 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 the question that you asked me. It's a valid point. Sinn Féin. I think that uh, maybe it's hope rather than expectation. I think eventually people are going to notice that you've got a very well-run country there, Jim. I know it goes against the current fashion to have a go at the coalition to say that they're hapless, that they're useless. And you pick up the Irish Times and you'll see a column that says that every single day of the week. But if you look, at least in relative terms, at these two islands, which country looks content, relatively speaking, with itself socially, is not hopelessly divided over major, major issues? Which country looks well run? I mean, it's certainly not the one I'm sitting in. And I think eventually some, some people are bound to notice this and will ask the question, do we want to be well run? Or do we want this shower of populists to be taking risks with the economy in the way that that shower of populists over there in the UK are doing? I don't know. Maybe it's a hope rather than expectation. But I think the longer this coalition keeps on delivering um, a good outcome, is that that old old fashioned measure, Jim, GDP, which of course is nonsense for the Irish economy, I know all that, is still double digit for this year, 2022. 10% GDP growth is what was in the budget documents yesterday. And I know GNI star was half that, it was 5%. Um, but even modified domestic demand, I think, is up by high single digits this year. Yeah, we're, talk, we're talking about over 7%, uh, but slowing to 1.2% next year. Uh, yeah. So I think that was, a, yeah. Yeah, that, 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 it's right to be that cautious. But, mm. you know, the Irish economy is going gangbusters. The problems that you have, housing, um, they are the result of bad policies. And I include planning in that, not just what the coalition have done or not done. But they are problems of economic success. They need tackling. They need radical action. And so, yes, uh, I, th that's the, the Achilles heel of the coalition. The reason why Sinn Féin can keep going at them is because young people struggle so, so badly with both renting and buying and all buying. Um, and I, I suspect that, that that Achilles heel is not going to go away very, very soon. Chris, just to finish on a positive note, um, you know, I, I think there's a possibility that if 
the opinion polls don't turn around and if Sinn Féin form the next government, well, sorry, it's not just opinion polls, it's the actual <laughs> the actual vote that happens. But if Sinn Féin forms the next government, um, perhaps they'll be pragmatic enough to realise that actually things have been going okay um, and that there won't be this radical transformation in Irish economic policy making, and, and perhaps there will actually be you know, serious micro attempts made to address the real problems in the Irish economy and housing to me is top of the pile. So, yeah, well, it, there's a lot of history to support that thesis, Jim, not least Irish history, but yes. also many other countries that once radical parties in, in power um, drift or tack to the centre. You know, the, the revolutionary parties, the civil war parties that are the coalition at the moment, once upon a time, very radical, very radical parties. Indeed, indeed. Listen, Chris, it's been great talking, um, fascinating stuff going on at the moment. Um, I look forward to talking again. And uh, Well, let's hope we don't have to do another another emergency one tomorrow. But if Absolutely. we do, I'll speak to you then. <laughs> Cheers, buddy. See you, Chris. Bye. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 